You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that in love you called us from death to life, from darkness into light. And in love you keep your children. And it is out of your love and endless mercy that you are shaping us and fashioning us and conforming us to the image of your beloved Son, and we pray that would continue even here this morning. That our worship wouldn't stop when the music stops, but our worship in this time would continue as we open your word. That you'd receive the praise and honor and, and awe that is due you as we sit, as we read, as we pray, as we respond to your Spirit's conviction. And so we ask for your help this morning. Spirit, I ask in particular that you would keep me from any error. What we need is your word, not anyone's opinion, especially not mine. So would you speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word, that your people might be equipped with everything that they need, and then we might respond with joy and gratitude. Receive our worship now as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning. Thank you guys for leading us in song. We're continuing in the book of Jude, so you can grab your Bibles and turn to the little New Testament letter of Jude. Um, We started this last week, so if you were with us last week, you know where we're at. If you're just jumping in here or you're new or you're visiting this week, welcome. We're in the book of Jude. Some folks from our strike team will be coming around and they can get you a Bible if you'd like to follow along. It's right before the book of Revelation uh, uh, at the end of the New Testament. Um, The title for this series, uh, it'll be five weeks totally, a total in the book of Jude, at least as we've got it planned out so far. And um, and last week I kind of gave a a long three-sentence paragraph that was the big idea for Jude, and that was uh, not as helpful. And so actually I was talking with Devin this week, and he was like, hey, you know, you could probably shorten that down into one sentence. I'm like, you know, you're probably right. And so uh, I'm just grateful for the team of guys we have here and our staff. But uh, so, so um, I've shortened up that big idea into this. Maybe this is a little more uh, rem- memorable. I was going to say rememberable, but that's not a word. Memorable for us. So here's kind of the umbrella for Jude as a whole. Here it is. Jude is a call to contend for the faith by exalting in the truth, rejecting what is false, and holding fast to our faithful God who holds fast to us. Jude is a call to contend for the faith by exalting in the truth, rejecting what is false, and holding fast to our faithful God who holds fast to us. Hopefully that helps us and is a framework for us, an umbrella under which all the rest of our study of Jude will sit. Now, last week we looked at the first two verses, and just verses one and two primarily, where Jude kind of lays a foundation, some groundwork for Christian identity, that those who belong to Jesus are called by Him, they are beloved by Him, and they are kept by Him. And this is the foundation upon which Jude builds out the rest of his exhortation, which is what this letter is, an exhortation, a challenge, and an encouragement. And we'll get to that as we will see that more and more, both his challenge and his encouragement as we work through the letter. Today, our task is to look at only two more verses, verses three and four. I promise going forward, we're not going to just take it two verses at a time. The next section that kind of goes together is a a lot longer, verses five through 16. But today, I want to look at three and four. And honestly, we've got a lot to cover in just two verses. So so we're going to get started. And because Jude is relatively short, we'll do what we did last week. And I'm just going to read the whole letter, and I want to invite you to follow Along, So we're going to read our text. It'll be on the screen. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, this is the entire letter of Jude in the word of the Lord for us today. 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain, <clears throat> excuse me, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment, undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars from whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is... God's holy and perfect word. Now, let me ask, can you recall a recent time when you were in an airport? I was, I've been in a couple of airports recently. And oftentimes, although Amy and I noted that in some airports, there's nothing over the loudspeakers, but often you'll hear this kind of repeated message over the loudspeakers in a pleasant voice. In the interest of aviation security, please keep your luggage with you at all times. And then it goes on to explain to not take packages from strangers and the like. You've heard that before? You're like, I don't know, Jake, I've never been to an airport. Well, sometimes they say that over the loudspeaker. Right? You might also see, whether it's uh, uh, at an airport or at a large sporting event, large public gathering of some kind, uh, ads on a screen or printings, uh, in little slots in a restroom or something that say something like, see something, say something. Have you seen those? Now, your level of trust in the government notwithstanding, the stated aim of those sorts of messages is what? 
Well, it's meant to increase your awareness, your situational awareness. You don't have to freak out. It's just making you aware of potential threats. So just be aware. Now, parents do this instinctively. If you're a parent of a small kid, you're, you're on your way to the park, and the road seems particularly busy today with cars, what do you do? You, you probably hold the hand of your child a little tighter, right? Or you tell your son or daughter on their little push bike, rocketing down the sidewalk, hey, can you stop at the next driveway or stop at the end of the street? Don't, don't cross the street. It's really busy today. Look both ways. Just wait till I get there. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. Why do you do this? Because the danger level is higher here on the street than it is when they're just tooling around in the driveway. And in this letter, Jude is seeing some things. He's seeing some things that are cause for concern. So he's kind of calling out like a loving father to his kids. Hey guys, be careful. (laughs) There's a threat here and I'm not sure you're aware of it. And to be perfectly honest, I think it would be easier if the threats that Jude's talking about were more obvious. But, but that's actually part of why Jude seems concerned, because the threats are not obvious. Jude says these threats have already kind of snuck in. They're already here. And this is consistent with the strategy of our enemy. The enemy of God and his people is, in fact, Satan himself. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm reading an excellent book right now, um, about a third of the way into it, by uh, a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. It's called Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Really, really good book. Um, and even before I get into the meat of the book, I, I pulled a couple of things from the introduction, which I thought were just gold. Uh, a guy named Kevin DeYoung, pastor and author, he, in the foreword to the book, writes this. He says, the devil is a liar, emphasis his, and not just any old liar, a very good one. He normally avoids direct assaults. He prefers deceit and misdirection. Think of the snake in the Garden of Eden, merely suggesting that God's word might not be fully trustworthy. The devil specializes in traps and snares. He masquerades as an angel of light. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. Our enemy, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, is wicked, tricksy, and false. He is the father of lies. And this is Jude's warning, I think, or fuel for Jude's warning, and it's kind of our big idea today. The big idea for just these two verses, verses 3 and 4 of the letter from Jude, is this. That Satan is a liar, and Christians counter his deception by exercising discernment. Let me say that again. Satan is a liar, and Christians counter his deception by exercising discernment. Newsflash. There's an enemy. And we don't fight this enemy using fists, hand-to-hand combat, because Paul reminds us that our battle is not primarily against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, Ephesians chapter 6. And we don't find safety and security from our enemy by just trying to hide out underneath and and just hold on till we make it. Because Romans chapter 12 says, Paul writes, we're not actually supposed to be conformed to the world, but we're actually supposed to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. And so my argument is that we counter the work of our enemy, we counter his lies and deception by exercising discernment. And discernment might be a word that that is not in your normal vocabulary. Here's a quick kind of dictionary definition. Discernment is the ability to perceive things clearly especially those that are not obvious or straightforward. Let me read that again. Discernment is the ability to perceive things clearly, especially those that are not obvious or straightforward. So so I guess my argument today from these two verses in Jude is that the call to contend, which is the theme for the book of Jude, is a call to exercise discernment. And I think there's both a positive and a negative part of that. Here's what I mean. There's a for and an against. And that's how I, I, I want to look at these two verses today. Discernment means contending for the faith. That's a positive. And, 
And discernment also means contending against counterfeits. Contending for the faith and contending against counterfeits. As I said, we're just looking at verses 3 and 4 primarily today. So let's read verse 3 again. Jude verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is the, the positive, the contending for something. So what is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints? Well, I think at least in part, it's what the Apostle Paul calls f- of first importance. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, For I delivered to you, church, what is of first importance. That means primary. Paul says what I received. And this is what Paul received that he transferred and communicated to the church, which he says is first. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It's the the core of the gospel message that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, was buried, and rose again, conquering sin and death. What's more, I think Jude has that in mind, but he also has, I think, not just that in mind. Not just the core gospel message, but the testimony of God's whole word. And I say that because Paul also writes to a young pastor named Timothy who's shepherding people in a culture that is full of wickedness and evil, so different than the culture we live in today. Sarcasm. And Paul writes, in view of all the godlessness and evil that you see around you, Paul writes this to young Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And its purpose, that the man of God may be complete and equipped from every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I think Paul's view and Jude's view And the word for us today is that God has clearly and abundantly revealed himself and his will to us through his word. And the exhortation, the challenge then is to fight, to contend for this, this truth. I find it somewhat fitting, and because I don't believe in uh, coincidence Of all days that we're looking at this little passage of Jude and the contending for the truth, uh, typically the last Sunday in October is remembered or is referenced as Reformation Sunday in church history. It marks the anniversary of Martin Luther, who on October 31st, 1517, nailed a set of arguments, 95 of them, his theses, to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg, Germany, in protest of the Roman Catholic Church selling indulgences to raise money to build a cathedral. So so what was happening is someone could purchase what was called an indulgence. I could put some money in the coffer and, and then whomever, the priest or whomever, would grant me some extra measure of grace in exchange for my donation. One well-known seller of indulgences, uh, Johann Tetzel, was heard parading through the streets, collecting, loudly proclaiming, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. They were essentially selling grace. And Luther argued, well, it's actually only by God's grace alone that salvation is assured, not through works, including financial contributions. And so Luther's theological stance would continue to be challenged until 1521, just a few years later, Luther would be called in front of an official meeting in the city of Worms. That's the German way to say it. And it was known as the Diet of Worms. A diet was an assembly, an official assembly uh, in the Holy Roman Empire. And Luther was called to renounce his disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church and Pope Leo X and was called to reaffirm his unity with the church. And Luther refused to recant what he had written. It's recorded Luther closed his defense saying this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, 
He says, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And tradition tells us that he also said before his departure, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. Now, church history also tells us that about a month later, this council brought their ruling to bear and declared Martin Luther both a heretic of the Roman Catholic Church and an enemy of the state, which he bore that branding, I don't know if I'd say proudly, but kind of, for the duration of his days. And Luther, as as imperfect and flawed of a man as he was, which he was, by God's grace, helped lead in the recovery of the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone that had fallen into darkness in Rome and it became the the light of the Protestant Reformation. It led to a resurgence of trust and dependence in God's revealed word, the Scriptures. Luther was compelled to contend for the truth by exalting in and upholding the Word of God as supreme. So for us, contending for the faith means we too are held captive to the Word of God. We are joyfully in chains to the Word of God. Even when it means shame and ridicule, even when it means loss of standing, even when it might even mean loss of life, nothing now sits above this Nothing overrides this. Here we stand, we cannot do otherwise. Exercising discernment means contending for the faith. It doesn't mean less than that. But it also doesn't only mean that. Exercising discernment also means contending against counterfeits. And that's the the second thing I want to talk about this morning. We live in a world of counterfeits. Whether you know that or not, we do. You don't have to be particularly technologically savvy, but with just a few swipes through a set of filters, you can make yourself look remarkably different than you do in real life. Makeup, sparkles, cat ears, the whole bit, right? It's easy. In order to make yourself look different, you used to have to shell out money at the mall to a place called Glamour Shots where someone else would do your hair and makeup and take a photo of you through like a fuzzy lens, if you're like, I don't know what that is, talk to someone who's like over 35 years old because they remember that that existed. But here's a more serious one. Talk about living in a world of counterfeits. It took all of about 10 seconds after fighting broke out in Gaza and images and news stories started flooding to uh, news uh, websites and headlines and Twitter. And right on the heels of all the information that was just being dumped into the universe were questions. Do we even know what's real? What if these images have been doctored? Is this story that's being reported, that it actually happened that way? Or is there something else that's going on? And, and, And this isn't a new thing either. For as long as humans have been fighting propaganda and trying to argue and get people onto your side by trying to make yourself look better than the other team, whatever, like that's part of the brokenness of human nature. It just used to to take a little bit of while, uh, a couple of days at least, a little while for a false image or a false headline to make its way to a newspaper across the ocean. Now it happens in a moment, right? We live in a world full of counterfeits. The question is, how do we identify them? And this goes well beyond. I am not an expert in like AI photography or Photoshop or any of that. This is what Jude says, verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Here's how he defines them. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says there are counterfeits who have crept in and they mostly look the part. But in reality, they're doing two really deeply destructive things. 
The first is they pervert the grace of God into sensuality, and two, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus. They get grace wrong. That's a problem. And at their core, they don't submit to Jesus. They have some other master, likely themselves. And now Jude digs into the fruit of that, and we're, we're going to get into that a little bit more as we look at the judgments that are kind of being pronounced as we look at verses 5 through 16 next week. But, but I want us to just real quick pull from this. The key for us today is understanding that those who are false have already crept in. That's Jude's whole point. And so he's kind of like hitting the red alert button for the church here to go, hey, there are counterfeits among you and their end is destruction. And what makes it dangerous is that their errors are not just rookie mistakes. We'll get into it later. Like he says there are shepherds who are feeding themselves. But it's not just leaders and it's not just you know, uh, new believers who might are still trying to figure out what they know and what they believe, things that are obvious, right? Jude's not worried about someone standing up in the middle of the church service saying, Hail Satan. He's not worried about that. That's obvious. Someone would be like, we guess you talk to that guy. He doesn't, we should talk to that guy, right? Obvious, obvious. It's too obvious. Jude says they've crept in unnoticed, And this, honestly, it's consistent with what we know of our enemy, right? His tactics are cunning and under the radar, and he hides in plain sight and disguises his motives. He's a liar. I love the way Jesus says it. When he lies, he speaks his native language, right? Here's Kevin DeYoung again from the introduction. I'm, I'm further in the book, I promise, but the introduction's good. Here's Kevin DeYoung again. He says, the devil lies to us in many ways. He may not speak through a snake, but he knows how to make his voice heard. Sometimes he may bring something directly to mind, or perhaps he keeps us from seeing and hearing what we should. More often, I imagine, he speaks through the half-truths and quarter-truths that we find in a thousand movies, television shows, and news reports. His voice can be heard in our universities and from the halls of power. If we listen carefully, we may detect his slithering speech in Christian books and in spiritual blogs, even from pastors and churches. It's Charles Spurgeon's definition of discernment. I think I mentioned it last week, at least at one service. He said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's the challenge, right? That's the hard part for us is where do we start drawing lines? We don't want to be so hard line and draw lines around everything and big, bold, can't cross this that we draw this little tight circle that we probably don't even stand in. But, but Jude's warning stands, right? So, so we want to be like Paul, who on the one hand, he says, whether because of selfish ambition or because of goodwill, if Christ is proclaimed, in this I rejoice. Paul says that in Philippians chapter 1. It doesn't matter the motivations. If Christ is being proclaimed, I want to rejoice in that. But Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that light and darkness, unrighteousness and righteousness, Jesus and idols, they share nothing in common. And in Ephesians 5, Paul says we're actually not to partake in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but expose them. And so we might think that these two ideas about rejoicing in the gospel and exposing the darkness are at odds, but they're really not. And here's why they're not. Because we're not just asking the question, is the gospel being preached? But more specifically, what gospel is being preached? Is it the gospel of Jesus being proclaimed? Or is it another gospel, small g? And I believe just kind of collectively, our discernment muscles in the church in general are kind of weak. And why do muscles get weak? They atrophy. They lose their strength because you don't use them. And this is what I've wrestled with a lot this week is is how hard do you press, right? Like any uh, any good coach has to know, like, 
I'm not going to throw like a thousand pounds on your barbell and be like, bench press that. Like, have you seen me? Just give me the empty barbell. I'm fine. <laughs> right? How hard do I press? Because part of my responsibility in contending for the faith as one of your pastors, along with Devin and Marty and our, and our elder team, one of our responsibilities is contending for your maturity, contending for your growth, contending for your love for the truth, that you would exult in the glory and sufficiency of Jesus and his gospel. And so because of that, I want us to collectively be able to really exercise these muscles a little bit, if I can call them that, if you follow the illustration, so that we will be strong in our faith, that we will be confident and courageous to stand firm in a post-Christian and a post-truth culture with consciences that are held captive to the Word of God. And so I think that for us to heed the words of Spurgeon, to try to strive with humility and with wisdom to draw a line between what is right and what is almost right, we need to make sure that we're drawing that line on the truth of the person and work of Jesus. Because we can get a lot of things kind of wrong or, or partially right, and, and please hear me, I'm not standing up here as some like paragon of perfect theology. I get a lot of things wrong. Someday in glory, we will all have perfect theology. Amen? Until then... We're all some version of work in progress. But if we get Jesus and his gospel wrong, then we get everything else wrong. So we have to draw the line there. And, 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 and this is where things start to get spicy. John Calvin says that the pastor ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And the scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. For he who is deeply skilled in it will be able to both govern those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. And I'm not making any claim to how skilled I am at that, as, as Calvin says, but I am confident in the sufficiency of the scripture. So, so I want to talk a little bit about contending against counterfeits. So there's a few things here that I we're going to step in them. Here we go. Here's the first one. Prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. And I'll just, I say gospel and I mean small g, not a gospel. Now this is a movement that's not new. This kind of theology asserts that God's perfect will for you is that you will be healthy and wealthy and happy. And if you are not those things, it's because you don't have enough faith. It shares and borrows pagan ideas of visualizing and manifesting your dreams and your desires and speaking things into existence. It is Gnostic in its separation of both the physical and the spiritual parts of God's design for humanity. It is demonic and it is poisonous. And it has been exported all over the globe, particularly into places in Africa and Central America. And it brings with it not freedom in Christ, but bondage. Now let me be real clear. Not all of our charismatic or more charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ adhere to this kind of errant theology. I just want to be really clear on that. But the list of those who teach this kind of false gospel include popular names like Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, and other names like Bill Johnson, who leads the church, Bethel Redding Church in, or Bethel Church in Redding, California, which is the home for Jesus Culture Music, by the way. This false gospel piggybacks on the true gospel and then pulls the gospel out and offers something entirely different. That's one. Here's another one. What's, what's often, often referred to as either uh, theological liberalism or more, more recently, progressive Christianity. This is seen across mainline Protestant denominations uh, pretty clearly. Essentially, it's a moving away from the Bible as the first and final authority in all matters of life and faith. And instead, it relies on human wisdom and reason to pick apart parts of the Bible that are less culturally relevant. Maybe Jesus really didn't perform all those miracles. Maybe his followers made those up afterwards. 
Maybe the Apostle Paul didn't really mean what he wrote about sexual immorality. Or maybe he did, but he just didn't have our modern understanding and sensibilities. And then the next step then is editing out the parts of the Bible that don't fit our preferences, right? But this isn't new. This actually sounds a lot like the serpent in the garden trying to convince Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them. God's not telling you the whole truth, and instead the serpent goes, did God really say? And when your arguments begin to sound like the serpent's arguments, I think you're going in the wrong direction. Here's another, maybe a little less well-known. There's been a growing number of people, particularly men, who have been enamored with a modern version of Greek Stoicism. I talked to my wife about this. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, that's good. But it's actually growing, particularly in like things like social media realm and Twitter and the Reddit world. Like Christianity, it's a philosophy that, that outwardly promotes virtue and self-discipline and the development of a conscience. And people are often attracted to this idea because they look at the world around them and they're like, yeah, the world is broken and I'm going to do something about it. And so because they, they feel like their eyes have been opened to the, the brokenness of the world around them, they take the red pill, right? They take the red pill and they come to the realization, I'm going to do something about it. The problem is what neo-Stoicism essentially offers them is you look inward at yourself and better yourself. And some of its loudest spokesmen, people like Andrew Tate, if you're familiar with that word, that, that name at all, are selfish and wicked men who should be prayed for for their salvation, but they are not to be emulated or trusted. In contrast, the gospel calls us not to surrender to self, but to surrender to Christ who transforms us and by the power of his spirit makes us new. And he alone, Jesus, is worthy to emulate. He is worthy to worship and worthy to obey. This doesn't even get into other cults and false religions like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarian Universalism, Scientology, the black Hebrew Israelites and white nationalist identity groups, which is funny because they both claim to be the true descendants of the Hebrew people based on their skin tone. Like, you guys are just going to fight that out because you realize these are incompatible, right? None of these are Christian. All of them are demonic. And if they preach Christ, it's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's a different Christ. And I don't think these are the ones to whom Paul's referring in Philippians 1 of like, well, if Christ is being preached, I rejoice. Because I don't think they're preaching the same Jesus or the same gospel. But those are the easy ones. That was not a hard part of the sermon for me to prep. I've got one more, and this is where I start to get a little fired up. I made up this phrase. It's not a word, but it's, all three, it's a hyphenated word. Quasi-Christian evangelicalism. Again, like I said, I made it up. Quasi means almost, but not really. And there might be some folks in the categories above that fit into this, but but there's a lot that passes for Christianity in our world today that I'm not sure should. It falls under what I read earlier from DeYoung. It's a lot of half-truths and quarter-truths that we find in Christian books and blogs and music. He says even from pastors and churches. In fact, there is an evangelical pastor who leads a huge church and has tons of influence over the last 20 years who has publicly said from the stage that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff that fits into this category. There's books. There's so-called Christian music. And the problem is, because there's a lot that seems like it lines up with Christianity or with the Bible, it seems generally good but it's full of partial truths and they're just expecting that you and I, good, well-meaning, humble, we don't like to pick fights, Christians are just going to fill in the gaps that they intentionally leave there. And there's, it wouldn't be worth it to make a list because there's too many examples. 
But that's kind of the point. Jude doesn't make a list of heretics. He just says, by the way, the gospel's at stake. You should know that. And at the risk of coming across as legalistic or overly critical, in my wrestling through this, I felt compelled to share my own impression of a recent cultural Christian phenomenon. So I'm going to pick a fight here. Not to be pedantic, not to be... um, combative, but it's in, the, it's in the margin of almost right where I think our battle has to be done, and this is a conviction for me, and so just, here we go. I don't like the show The Chosen, and it's not just out of personal preference. I, let, me, let me unpack that for you. If you got really upset just now, just please hear me out. The quality of the acting, the production is really top-notch. In fact, for most uh, production, uh, art, movies, TV, uh, whatever, that has labeled Christian, there's something to be learned about production value and quality here. That's fine. And I understand that the concept is to try to tell the story of Jesus from the perspective of others around him, the disciples and, and those who are in his circle. And because we don't have written down words and and comments and motivations of those people in the Gospels as revealed to us, it has to include a whole bunch of artistic license. But therein lies the rub. Because in many cases, there is emphasis being placed on things that at the very best are unknown. It's the white space between the words in the Bible. And that's at best, it's just unknown. And at worst, it's actually untrue. Characters, relationships with one another, the personalities of the disciples, the, 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 the motives that they have that are kind of assumed in the artistic rendering of something we do have, uh, uh, words that were said or actions that were done and getting underneath us. Well, why do we do that? We don't know, but we will just infer that here's maybe why they did or said that. But in, but in reality, all those things are, are still secondary to me. I'm not willing to die on those hills. What's particularly troubling for me are when, are the words and the actions that are imposed upon Jesus himself. Things he did not say and things he did not do as recorded for us in the gospel accounts that actually do come from Jesus' mouth and Jesus' hands. And what's troubling is that it's in those things where we seem to get the strongest response from people who are, uh, who, who, who are watching it. I know the, the general rule is to not read comments on the internet. I know that's the general rule. Don't read the comment section. But it's actually these kind of extra biblical things that Jesus says and does in the show that tend to be the things that people latch on to. And they write things like, like this. And I'm directly, I'm quoting here some comments on an article that was kind of uh, highlighting and promoting, promoting this particular show. Here, direct quote. Quote, I feel like I'm finally seeing Jesus beyond the Bible in a wholesome and well-rounded depiction that reaches to my soul. Quote, I've been a believer all my life, but when I watched this series, I was able to have a closer relationship with God. Quote, This series has shown Jesus in a new light. I have felt immediately closer in my relationship with Jesus after watching season one. Now, maybe that's just me, but I find those troubling. And here's why I do. Two reasons. The first of which is that article from which those quotes were pulled was from a ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormons. And this article couldn't give a stronger recommendation for the show or their depiction of Jesus. Let me just be really clear. Mormons are not Christians. They believe in a different Jesus than the Jesus revealed in the Bible. And the Mormon connections to the production of The Chosen aside, notwithstanding, what's more concerning to me is that those quotes are concerning because they tend to minimize the revelation of Jesus Christ from his very word and rely on a secondary source for enlightenment about Jesus. 
I kind of loved Jesus before, but now that I've seen him in this way, I really love Jesus. Now, to the degree that a show like The Chosen or anything else, a book, a blog, an article, a TV show, a movie, to the degree that it drives people to their Bibles, then I want to be like the Apostle Paul and I want to celebrate that. That it drives people to the truth of the gospel, then I want to rejoice. But to the degree that a depiction of Jesus on a show or in a book or a movie or anything else, to the degree that that version becomes primary because it's more engaging or more palatable than what is plainly revealed in the scriptures, then we're into a kind of territory that I think Jude is warning Christians about. Now, let me be really clear. I, I am not at all interested in binding your conscience on this issue. I feel like I needed to speak directly, but, but I'm not like, so therefore, if you disagree with me, find a different church. Church discipline. None of that's happening, okay? I'm not interested in binding your conscience on this issue. My goal is not to shame someone or twist your arm and to like just take up my view on the topic. It's obvious I have some concerns and most specifically about putting words in Jesus' mouth that he didn't say. On top of that, putting words in his mouth that come from other sources outside of the Bible. Not just human heads, but things like the Book of Mormon, which actually happens in season four, by the way. My aim is not to to twist your arm or to be like, gee, Jake went really hard at that today. I don't know how to feel about that. My aim in bringing this to the surface is to actually encourage you because it's in these less obvious places that we need to exercise discernment. And so if you're and that's the first thing. And two, if you're looking for opportunities to engage people with Jesus, which we all should be, any opportunity to point people to Jesus, let's take it. But I think there are better resources at times. And so my encouragement would be to offer them the full and true Jesus and not just be content with offering them like diet Jesus with artificial flavors. Does that make sense? Now, if you want to talk more about this or other topics related to this, maybe I, maybe I stepped in something that you're like, that, I got questions. I'd like to talk to you about that. Seriously, as always, I am an open book. Uh, my office is open. My email inbox is open. Although conveniently, I will be out of town this week, Wednesday to Friday. <laughs> but that wasn't planned to be out of town. It just happened to not be around this week. I'm actually going to be with some other pastors from uh, our denomination talking about how to be a church that sends out churches. So I get to go talk with some other uh, pastors and church leaders about that this week. I'm really excited about. But that's not an excuse. Like when, when the thing I'm next to my office says Jake is out of the office, don't be like, he's avoiding me. He doesn't want to talk about this. I do. We'll talk about it. And the, the goal is, I don't want to get too bogged down in this. I've already taken way too much time. I don't want to get too bogged down in this particular example. I, but I wanted to use that as an, as, as an illustration for the broader point. That if we are going to endure, if we're going to continue in faithfulness to Jesus, if we're going to have a, a counter to the lies of our enemy who hates us, then I want us to start working out this discernment muscle a bit. And the work probably needs to be done, not primarily in the places that are obvious, but in the places where our enemy is crafty and attempting to deceive us with all of the almost right. Because even though our enemy is a liar, Peter tells us that Satan is prowling around like a lion seeking for someone to devour. And even though he is a, a liar and a, li- and a lion, <laughs> a lying liar, I don't even know how to say that, he's at work. <laughs> That's what he's doing. He's at work. He's angry. He hates God's people. He is seeking destruction. We need not fear. We need not fear. We don't need to be defensive. We don't need to be contentious and shoot first and ask questions later. Right? We don't need to draw hard lines around everything. But the goal is that our consciences might be joyfully held captive, joyfully in chains to God's perfect and enduring word. 
And honestly, the most effective way to identify counterfeits is to be so familiar, so saturated, so satisfied with the real thing, the true gospel, the whole counsel of God's word, to be so saturated in it that we know then, even if we can't pinpoint exactly what it is, we can recognize, hey, this doesn't seem quite right. So that the almost right, which is often hard to see, becomes obvious. Even though Satan is a liar, we counter his deception as we exercise discernment. And as we exercise spirit-filled discernment, we are able to stand with courage and with confidence. And my prayer in all of this is that Jesus would continue to build up his church. And through his church, through his people, would continue to advance his gospel to push back the kingdom of darkness to the praise of his unending glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the goodness and sufficiency of your word and your work. That you have in pure grace given us everything that we need. You've revealed yourself to us with enough of what we need to know you and to follow you. And I pray you'd do this. You'd, you'd continue to be at work in conforming us to Jesus, in strengthening our ability to discern. That as Jude prays, that by your Spirit, we might be built up in our faith and find ourselves holding fast to you as you hold fast to us. Father, I pray we would find ourselves captive not to lies, not to deception. We would find ourselves captive to your word, that it would govern every part of our lives, and that by your spirit would do its work in transforming our minds, conforming us to Jesus. Would you help us to exalt in you, Lord Jesus, even as we come to the table. In your sacrifice, what is of first importance that you came and died and was buried and rose again for us. Would you continue to stir our hearts to worship in Jesus' name, amen.